Welcome to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. Let me introduce you to Emmett Kennedy, force behind the chart-topping horse racing show, The Final Furlong Podcast. We dive deep into his love for the sport, as well as some sensitive and pressing issues, such as the Euro's use of Lasix at the Breeders' Cup, jockey changes, racial diversity, Brexit and its disruption to horse racing, before finishing it off with a quick preview of all the jumps action coming up in Europe this winter, before the dreaded turn of the year. It's the longest show I've ever done, diving into long-form podcasting here. I hope you'll get a good bit of entertainment out of this on whilst driving to work, exercising, etc. Let's get going. Hello, Emmett. Finally, after having talked an hour and a half before we finally started recording, you joined me on Talk Racing to Me. You are the presenter, producer, owner of the Final Furlong podcast, but you've done so much more as well. I wanted to add something like, and you know, you love Ralph Lauren and you're a loyal <laughs> subject to your three cats. I mean, that's some of, you, some of the stuff people need to know about you, right? Oh, I, I, first of all, I would uh, add a correction and omission there. It was at least three and a half hours that we were talking for before this actually, before the record button was hit. Uh, yes, Ralph Lauren, if you're listening, uh, where is the endorsement contract? Because literally all of my clothing is Ralph Lauren. And uh, I hope that doesn't make me sound like a complete and utter prat. But anyway, um, watch out for the sales. That's what I'll say. Uh, Black Monday and uh, Black Friday is coming up. And, uh, outlet Cyber- malls. Outlet malls. Cyber, Cyber Monday. Yeah. Don't don't deal with the outlet malls. No, 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 no. Deal, di- oh, no. deal direct with the site. Uh, Ralph run themselves. And that way you know you're getting looked after properly. Um, uh, yes, I have three cats. And uh, they own me. And um, they are uh, a big part of my life. I absolutely love them. I love animals. Um, my interest in, in racing, you were saying, like all of the different things that I do. Um, I started in broadcasting when I was 16. And honestly, I hated school. I have no idea what I would be doing if it wasn't for broadcasting. I'm extremely blessed to have been given the opportunities that I've been given. Um, a lot of them came through through uh, through school and transition year. That's I got to to do a musical, and I was extremely shy. I had a I had a very um, traumatic childhood. Um, I think everybody has some kind of a story in terms of their childhood, but um, I'm blessed again that I have a fantastic mother who guided me through that and uh, and was there for me and is there for me every step of the way. But um, I for a, for a brief moment, Naomi, for a brief moment, I got to do show jumping, and uh, oh. I was I was terrible at it uh, at first. But the first thing I did was fall off the horse. Uh, head first into the ground but I got right back on that horse and kept on going and um, did a bit of cross country and uh, uh, did some competitions and was rubbish at those Uh, there are no merit badges hidden away in the attic for me Um, I was never that good but I got to muck out stables and be around horses and I just I, I was fascinated by them I was even at a young age I was fascinated by their their various different personalities and the various different ways that they behave and how one would be like very domineering and um and be 
extremely dangerous, quite frankly, to be around, while another would be as uh, as gentle as a kitten. And um, also around about that time, we're now talking about the age of 14, um, my uncles were uh, a big inspiration to me. Um, and uh, they, my mother did four jobs to this. This is where the money then disappears because my, my, my father was just a, a, a jerk as you Americans call it, say. And so now, uh, the money that we, we should have, um, is gone. And, uh, and so my mother is working for like, he, he worked in politics. So, you know, uh, and he had, a, he had a big, big job in politics. So we should have had, we should have had good money. We should have had good bank. It should have been racks on racks on racks. Uh, but in, instead, uh, my mother ends up having to work four jobs to put food on her plates. And uh, that was the end of show jumping. But I start learning about racing and I'm watching it with my uncles on the, on the telly. Like uh, I'd, come, I'd come home from school and one of them would be there to, to welcome me home and, and make sure that I'm all right. Um, and uh, before mom would come home and um, we talk about uh, Isterbrack. Who like would he'd always be like unbackable, but um, you know we we would talk about how incredible a horse he is, and I was introduced to the training of Aidan O'Brien and Jim Bulger's stable is not that far away from from my home, and uh, I started to learn about the the Jim Bulger yard and the history of Jim Bulger and all that he had achieved in the past, and um, there was a connection there to Martin Pipe as well, and so I started to to follow Martin Pipe as a as a jumps trainer and learn learn about them and and so i'm i'm doing broadcasting and my main interest is like i'm a liverpool fan and a proud liverpool fan um but if you ask me what my favorite sport is it's racing i'm fascinated by it and uh at the age of 18 i got an afternoon show with radio kilkenny which is where i'm from county kilkenny in ireland and um that was insane that I got the afternoon show on such a, a big radio station for its broadcasting area, for its jurisdiction. And as I was doing that show, I got a phone call one day from a guy called Neil Prendeville and a guy called Ronan McManamy. And um, they offered me, they said, basically, you know, come on down to Cork, my man. You know, come on down to the big city. Uh, we've got a few projects that we're working on here. So I got down to Cork, uh, meet the lads, and um, fell in love with the place straight away. Um, didn't think the interview had gone particularly well. Um, left it, came back to Kilkenny, um, you know, told my mother I didn't think that it went well, told the guys at Radio Kilkenny, no, I don't think so. And I'm getting ready to do the afternoon show, which had this weird start time of half past two. And my phone rings. And it's Rona McManamy saying we'd like to offer you the job. And I start, I, I, first of all, I was frozen and, um, Pat Marr was the engineer. And I remember looking at, at Pat Marr and Pat kind of knew it was them ringing. He just could, he could just tell. And, uh, he said, did they, did they? And I went, <laughs> I've got the job. And I started jumping around the place like an, an, an absolute lunatic. So, um, yeah, I started doing a primetime show for, for them. And they were one of the biggest, that's Cork's 96 FM. They were one of the biggest commercial stations in the country. And I spent 15 years working there. Um, and I had offers to go to other places. And I, I looked at different things along the way. And I'm not going to say that every day was was uh, a garden of roses there, but I have some of my best friends 
are people that I met through that job and they they remain friends of mine today. Some of them still work there. And uh, it's better than any college education to just be thrown into the deep end on such a big radio station with such a large listenership. They they control, Cork has a population of 500,000 people and they at the time they controlled 56% of the market share. And um, they were making me responsible for five hours of broadcast content five days per week. So initially it was seven to midnight, Monday to Friday, then that changed. And um, then I ended up doing like the, the current affairs show. And um, I, I think when I left, I was doing the afternoon show. I was covering it for my, my very dear friend, Ken Tobin, who is one of the best music presenters in, in Cork. And one of the best music presenters in Ireland, in my opinion. And um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But during that time, I managed to go and do some freelance work. I worked for uh, Paddy Power, who I suppose are going to become a big name in, in the US in the next few years, um, commentating on poker. I was a big, big poker fan. And I used to watch it endlessly on the television and um, play poker with my friends on a Friday and Saturday night. And we... We'd buy chips and we'd have like a casino style setup. And um, some of the boys would be just reckless players. And um, it was just, it was great fun. But I went from watching people like Neil Channing um, and uh, Daniel Nagrano to suddenly commentating alongside them um, within the space of a year. And it was in, it was just bonkers. It, it was like something that my brain kind of really needed to adjust to. And uh, one of the nights that we were doing, I think it was my my first night ever doing poker commentary, uh, they sent in Jennifer Tilly and Phil Locke, who uh, Jennifer Tilly would be known as an actress, but she's become a poker player. And Phil Locke is one of the best poker players in the world. And Jennifer is an exceptionally talented poker player. And we were doing the live stream together and we stopped talking about the hands and stopped talking about the poker and started talking about the universe. And... Um, how how the mind works and it, it we went into this deep philosophical conversation this deep on, dive on a poker in, live stream on a poker live stream like completely <laughs> ignoring like guys are getting knocked out with like uh bad beats on on the river and phil lock is is talking about um uh philosophy and uh he's talking about how how the mind works and how the mind is connected to the universe and there's things that we don't understand. And it was just this, I don't necessarily agree with what he was saying, but it was such a fascinating conversation to suddenly end up in. And thankfully at breakfast the next day, obviously we all went off and got epic drunk that night. Um, but like the next morning when I'm getting ready to do the, the live stream, the amount of people who came up and said, that was a great show last night. Phil Locke is just like, he's out there, but it was, it was a great listen. And uh, I, I realized then that I, that I loved that, that long form broadcasting was, was what I absolutely loved. Um, a television show came on the back of that for RTE, which is the national broadcaster in Ireland called Late Night Stars of Poker. I believe it's an adaptation of an American show sponsored by Poker Stars. And um, then some more work for RTE came along after that. Um, I did the commentary on the, I did the commentary on poker from 2009 to 2015. I uh, did the the Irish Open, the Irish Winter Festival, uh, the Full Tilt Poker Galway Festival, which I believe was the largest ever poker tournament held in Europe at the time. 
And uh, my good friend, Rebecca McAdam, was the genius and the brains behind that. And um, Bex ended up winning an award for that. And we were kind of like a dynamic duo as a commentary team as well. We worked together uh, for a long time and um, a nicer person you will not meet. And uh, then you're kind of, you're, you're back to radio. So you go and you do the freelance stuff and you take holiday time to go and do it. And then you'd go back and, and do the radio stuff. And it's like you're playing, here's the new single from Ariana Grande. <laughs> and it's like, um, right, that was Justin Bieber again on 96FM. I'm pretty sure that we He's still him. sorry. He's I'm, still sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty certain that we played him in the last hour, you know. And uh, here we go. Uh, here's, a, here's a hot new artist. It's... Um, yeah, someone that you may not have heard of. It's uh, U2 and their new single. And you're like, like, this is just, what is this? Because the station was was very much becoming, it had, it had gone from like taking personality out of radio, which I think if, America is different. Like America has this, this different um, side of things with radio. And really the man to, to thank for that is... Um, the uh, the absolute genius that is Howard Stern, and in and in some regards, Howard Stern is is the guy who almost inspired podcasts. If if you if you think about it, because his long form style of broadcasting, where he broke all the rules and just said, "Yeah, I'm not reading the script and I'm not playing this music. I'm just going on and I'm doing my show." Um, you then have a guy like Joe Rogan who comes along and starts doing these long form five hour podcasts. And Which is insane. Like, how can you sit there for five hours with... Like, he doesn't have a guest for that long, though, right? He'll change them up? No, no, no. It's the same guest. It's the same guest for... Five hours? I thought yeah. it was like two or three. I've yeah. listened to a few of them. I think Russell Brand was on for five hours. Oh, my... Yeah. Wow. And and you know and you know who else they had on? I don't... I'm not sure, sure if I can say his name without you getting demonetized, but I'll just say... I'll do an impression instead. Um, he He's had him on a few times. He had him on only a few weeks ago. They're coming! They're, the psychic vampires are coming to take the souls of your children! And he wears like tinfoil hats and uh, his last name is Jones. Um, so, he, yeah, he... Um, maybe his first name is Alex and his last name is Jones. That shouldn't get you <laughs> demonetized. You should be okay with that. With that. Uh, and he's had him on the air loads of times. And it's like, yeah, like, like this guy's clearly like off his rocker. But at the same time, He's been right about a lot of things, which is quite quite scary. Um, he's been disgraceful about some of the stuff that he's done, but he's been he's been correct about some things. But but Rogan could talk to anybody about anything for yeah. for hours, and I was getting very very frustrated about the fact that I couldn't talk about racing on air on on radio. They were saying, "No, we don't want you talking about racing on the on the show. We want you to focus on the Premier League or the Premier League." Uh, we want you to focus on, um, that's not a dig at Americans, by the way. They now want us, Irish and British, to refer to the Premier League as the Premier League. It's like, okay, I don't know why. Um, and uh, we, yeah. Is I, it I, a similar thing to like the Derby Derby yeah, kind of I, pronunciation? I kind mean, of. Because every time you've pronounced Kentucky Derby, in whenever you send me a voice message, it was like Kentucky Derby, and I'm like, no, Emmett, no, Kentucky Derby, <laughs> the Derby. Yeah, I'm, I I'm still do there. it too. I also confuse my my grade ones and and group group ones. But continue because I want to talk about your show, the Final Falling Podcast, which is what you were getting at. Yeah, so that's where this kind of emerged from. So it was just this complete and total frustration at the fact that I could not talk about racing, like my favorite sport, on air, and I was literally doing a sports show. 
And there would be times where I would be, I would be covering a current affairs show and people would want to ring in and talk about, um, Jane, isn't that Tony McCoy brilliant? Uh, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and you, you couldn't he do is. And he, <laughs> he is. He was anyway. He is. I mean, and he what, still and is, but he's he, not he still is. Yeah, he's a brilliant pundit. But, you know, but, but they just, they didn't want you to do that. And also, honestly, like over time, it just became like they wanted it to be formularic, generic, and robotic. Like they literally wanted to be, that was Ariana Grande. Now here's the new one from Post Malone. With no personality inserted in between, with no, uh, and you know, sometimes personality on radio can be can be really good, but sometimes it can be uh, horrible. And so I understand why you want to kind of dial back on that. But um, I was listening to at the time I was listening to Football Weekly, which is a, a podcast that, strangely enough, talks about football. And uh, the game podcasts, again, uh, talking about football. And I would go to sleep listening to these shows. And one day I realized, wait, where's the racing podcasts? So I, I started looking for them. And to be fair, Timeform were doing some stuff. But, and this is, with, this is said now with the utmost respect. And then he does his best insulting impression that he can. <laughs> Well, I mean, the great thing now about that performance there from that chaser was that he was rated 120, but on the basis of um, his performance here and on the basis of the finished, the, the horse who finished in second place, you'd have to say he's really more of a 125 horse, I suppose, going forward. So maybe maybe 126. So definitely want to mark up in your in your trends. Uh, definitely want to make it mark up in your tracker. And I was like, that's not how I want to talk about racing. That's not how I want to hear about racing. You know, like the, these, like, like that, all that information is very valuable, but let's do it in a more fun way. And mm -hmm. that's what Football Weekly were doing. Football Weekly was, what I, what I found refreshing about it was it was a bunch of journalists um, and broadcasters talking about their favorite sport. It wasn't ex-footballers. And you looked at Channel 4 Racing, um, which it was at the time when we started the, the, the podcast, or when I started the podcast, I should say, because I own it. Uh, but seriously, when, when I started the show, you would look at uh, Channel 4 and their coverage, and it's a lot of ex-jockeys, and uh, there are journalists there as well, but... It is a lot of people from the industry or who were born in, into the industry. And that's not to say that they're not good at what they do. They are. The vast majority of the people working for, for that channel at that time were very good at what they were doing. But um, why couldn't you just do a podcast that's a bit of fun and a bit of crack? So I decided, right, I'll look into the logistics of this. And um, when I was starting it, there was uh, there was a lot of different... Um, roadblocks that you had to overcome uh apple were the big thing apple are basically hold the the um the database and the algorithm essentially for for mm -hmm. podcasts and if you don't get approved, how long like, ago was that we're talking five years it was actually six years ago it was six okay. years ago that we started um so i had to submit the i decided to to go with uh, a particular podcast hosting platform called soundcloud and uh, got the rss feed but i had no show done. Uh, there was nothing recorded. And uh, I got a friend to mock up a logo for me very quickly. And it had to adhere exactly to what Apple podcasts require in terms of 
uh, how the 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 logo is sized and uh, the way it's saved and how it looks. Um, so I did everything that they wanted. And I was expecting it to be like two weeks before they had approved us. And we were approved within two days. It was nice. like, there we are. We're on Apple Podcasts. So now all I had to do was get a team. Um, so, so I called some people and uh, that I thought would be would be good on the show and um, assembled a, a group of a group of um, how do you describe it? Uh, a group of mercenaries. Let's let's call them that. And group uh, of experts, fun experts. A group of, a group of uh, mercenaries and experts who who all know what they're talking about and who are all really good, but also who are good crack and. That's exactly what they are. And, and that's what the show is about. And it's changed over the years in that the logo that we now have is much stronger and much better. And it's about to be updated again by the extremely talented Amy Lynham, who's a fantastic photographer. And uh, I have met her before. She's definitely a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. And her sister, Sarah Lynham, is a brilliant trainer as well. So uh, for all your uh, photographic needs and for your... Um, um, what is it? Uh, design, graphic design needs. Contact Amy Lynham. Uh, Amy's She'll now going to be gonna, very appreciative of that. Amy's now going to have to pay $500 to Naomi for that. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah, if Naomi doesn't get paid, then, then uh, you don't want to see the dark side of Naomi. Um, so, yeah, we started doing the show. And like initially, it was quite slow to take off. And, you know, there weren't very many listeners. And, in a way, it was a bit disheartening, but at the same time, it was just a case of, well, you know, we're, we're promoting this from our own social media accounts, and, um, you know, what do you expect? And suddenly, word, word started to spread, and we got written about in the Racing Post, In they have, like, a digital corner of, like, things to watch out for. And um, um, Apologies, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but thank you so much for doing this, because that would have propelled us as well. Uh, and he wrote about um, the Final Forum podcast, uh, informative and entertaining, which is exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, you know, we're not comedians, and I don't set out to to be like ha ha ha, and like you know, let's be like breakfast radio from The Simpsons, and you know, we're, we're all going to take the piss. That that's not what it's designed to be. It's designed to be the most informative show that it possibly can be. And I'm just the dumb dumb with the microphone. Uh, I turn to Naomi, who is a genuine expert and knows her stuff. And it's my job to get the absolute best out of her and to get the best out of Peter Fornital and Barry Faulkner and Nick Luck and um, all of the the other great people who are associated with the show, like Kate Tracy and Roy DeLarge and uh, Jane Mangan. So um, that's... that's um, that's how the the show started, and it has evolved over the years. And we got uh, we got advertising from the Irish Field, which was a bit of a help. All it, to be honest about it, what it did was it paid bills um, because podcasts cost money to make. And um, then uh, out of nowhere, at the races came on board. They they became very interested in it, and suddenly uh, I was able to invest more money into the equipment that I was using. And I didn't have to, uh, shh, don't say this loudly, um, rely on 96FM's broadcast equipment to make the show. <laughs> I could uh, I could do the, I could invest in the equipment of my own and record it whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted. And now I'm at a point where I have a fully digitalized studio that um, 
and again, I don't want to be making this sound like I'm bragging uh, or being a complete prat. To- totally bragging here, but go but, on. Uh, you know, one of the guys from, uh, one of the executives from TalkSport uh, saw the studio on Twitter one day and he sent me a message, he sent me a WhatsApp saying, uh, hey, where'd you get all that stuff? You know, where, can, you, can you list it out for us? Uh, and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And so a lot of people were working from home. And, and I said, um, well, you know, for the purposes of a WhatsApp, I don't really want to go through every single detail of it. But I'll say that the broadcast desk I use is a Rode Podcaster Pro and the, the computer I use to process it all and edit it is a MacBook Pro. And he said, um, would you mind sending me a full list of all of that, it would be a big help because a lot of our presenters are working from home during the pandemic. And if we could figure out um, how to build a studio like yours, because the picture that I've seen of your studio, your studio is nicer than the vast majority of studios that I've worked in in my career. And (laughs) I was like, wow, Thank. first of all, thank you very much. And yeah, you can have... I'll, I'll tell you everything. I'll give you the serial numbers of this stuff if you want after <laughs> such a compliment like that. So, um, and it kind of feels that way. Like, I, I think because I worked in radio from such a young age and because I um, made the decision to leave commercial music radio and, it, and it, was, it, was a, it wasn't a tough decision, to be honest about it. It was tough when they started throwing offers at me. As I said, I'm not renewing my contract. And, and I'm taking sick leave, which meant that um, I, have, I have a very bad back. But I'm bumped uh, It took 24 minutes for me to mention my bad back. Uh, for those of you Final Forum podcast listeners who are wondering how long will it take. And um, he, my doctor told me, you need to like work from home for a month and just rest it. You can't just be going in and out to the studio and all, all that that entails and going up and down stairs and standing in studios and all that. And, uh, and I finally took him up on it. I said, right look, um, I literally can't do this anymore. I was, I was feeling really low, really, really low uh, doing... And it's, it's, it's to no one's fault at the company. It was just that I no longer loved music radio. And I loved it initially. I, I really loved it. And I feel incredibly privileged and blessed to have been able to do it. But um, I didn't want to do it anymore. And... Uh, um, to be fair, they made offers to try and to try and keep me in, and I was very flattered by the offers they made. But like, if they'd made those offers two months ago, at that time, I probably would have stayed, and it would have been a big mistake. Um, but uh, I, I left and haven't looked back since, and it's been the final Furlong podcast, and then freelance work with Talksport and with ITV and with um, Sky and some stuff with CNN um, here and there, and. Um, I was actually commissioned to do a television series this year and uh, the plug got pulled on that about a month ago because we realized, yeah, Rona is not going away anytime soon. So that's oh, a, that's a bit of a frustration. Yeah, it's not. Yep. So, um, yep. But I, uh, your show currently is what one of the top sports shows in Ireland, right? Yeah, the, the Breeders' Cup podcast that we did was number one in the UK, which is kind of bonkers because it's the Breeders' Cup. And to be honestly, to be honest about it, not uh, honestly, let's try and use my mouth words correctly. Uh, To be honest about it, not every racing fan in the UK and Ireland is is interested in the Breeders' Cup. Like Tom Siegel from the Racing Post, who's a man I have immense respect for and has been nothing but nice to me all through 
every time I've met him. He's written articles where he's like, yeah, I'm not really interested in those races in the sand tonight. Uh, he's kind of changed his mindset on that recently. He's much more interested in it now. And I think that's because the Breeders' Cup is just so engaging. And um, for the last, like since we started the show, like so we started the show six years ago and for six years we've done a Breeders' Cup preview. And um, yeah, the, the Breeders' Cup came along to us this year and said, could we sponsor your Final Four podcast preview? And I was like, <clears throat> give me a second there, please. I'll just uh, have a sip of my Coca-Cola. Other, um, other soft drinks are available. Yes, that would be fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, and that was a huge honor. And of course, you were on the show with um, with the legend Peter Fornital and uh, from from the UK side of things with the legend Barry Faulkner. And um, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a show that that I believe in an awful lot. Um, the charts can be a bit iffy. You know, sometimes you're number twenty seven, sometimes you're number ten. Um, the Apple Podcast charts are the ones that I take more seriously. So to get to number one in the UK there was insane um that was just brilliant um and um yeah most recently because i decided to take the show out into the free market so like i i i'm basically like selling the show myself um we we've already signed a deal with one major sponsor we have another one that we're talking to and um that allowed me the ability to be able to sell to the breeders cup whereas in the past i wouldn't have been able to and Yes, to, to see the podcast chart so high is quite remarkable, but but it's all due to the fact that, first of all, we have fantastic pundits, um, we have an incredible team of people, um, but also our listenership is just insanely loyal. And um, it's remarkable the amount of people who listen to the show and who turn up to the live events that we do. And, and we've done a lot of live events over the years. I'd love to do more, but hey... Under the current circumstances, who knows? But um, yeah, I don't. I don't think that's going to happen anytime. But let's quickly discuss the British Cup, because that's indeed how we yeah. met. And we were kind of. I know that we together didn't do a, a sort of a, however you call it, like a, a, a review show. Uh, I yes. don't really want to do a review show here because we've already talked about the British Cup lots, but it's an interesting angle to take that um, you were mentioning that those European horses that were, were receiving Lasix have finished in higher positions than those who didn't. And of course, we have to exclude the juveniles from that equation as no two-year-old was allowed the administration of Lasix whilst competing at Keeneland. That's obviously a, a fair few of the race courses in the United States are currently using that um, option basically facing out Lasix but this is an interesting sort of point of view because the Europeans in in general if you look at medication use it it's looked upon a tad bit differently isn't it yeah it is um Aidan O'Brien's been extremely kind uh this year I guess I I, I don't know maybe it just took me a while to to grow up the courage or the or the, or the um what would uh what would um, Michael Douglas's character from uh, not not necessarily the film that you want to be recommending as a, as a, as an ambitious show to be watching for uh, younger listeners? But uh, what would Michael Douglas's character suggest? Um, let's go for Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and uh, Alec Baldwin's character. Uh, what would he say? You'd need brass balls uh, to be able to have the the courage to go out and, and approach certain people and. Um, yeah, I, I just I decided to reach out to Aiden O'Brien and see could I get him on the show. 
And he's been on the show countless times this this year, and he's been unbelievably kind with his time. And I asked him about Lasix. Um, Kate Harrington had been on the show. So Kate Harrington is assistant trainer to Jessica Harrington and, and her daughter as well. Uh, she's a, a buyer of horses and seller of horses in her, in her own right. Um, I asked her about Lasix and she said, no, none of their horses would run on Lasix. And that was, that's Jessica's yeah. viewpoint and that's her point. Mm-hmm. I asked Aiden about it. And Aiden said, yes, our horses will be running on Lasix. And, uh, and I said, and is that just because the rival horses that you're taking on are using it, so why shouldn't you use it as well? Like the, the rules over there are different to Europe. Therefore, if, if, it, if it's okay there, why wouldn't you do it? And, he, and he's literally said, which was the best answer, he said, well, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And uh, that's always been the our, our policy on this is, uh, you know, we can't we obviously can't use it in Ireland. We can't use it in the UK. But if we're going to be running against horses that are on it and we lose by a short head, uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So, yes, all of his horses ran on Lasix. And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, those who ran on Lasix finished higher up the field than those who didn't. Um, there is a very, very different attitude within the UK, Ireland, and, and Europe as well. And I suppose when I talk about UK, Ireland, and Europe, because you're going to talk about the B word later on, but let's save that till, till much, till much, much later. Um, the jurisdictions that I'm essentially referring to are the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, um, which just for clarification is England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and, and France. Occasionally, you will have a German horse that appears on the scene, but uh, let's be honest about it. Uh, nah. So it's it's about it's about those three main jurisdictions and the rules that they implement, and it's a it's a complete. If you have a German horse compete at the Breeders' Cup in the tur- in the Breeders' Cup turf, Donya, Donya, Donya. I was thinking of of Monsoon, who was German bred and won the Breeders' Cup turf, <laughs> but was trained by Andre Fab, and therefore it doesn't count in my opinion. Um, but no, to be fair to the Germans, they uh, or uh, yeah, yeah. To be fair to the Germans, they have invested huge amounts of money in bloodstock and in improving their um, their setup. I just wonder if the the sad thing for them is if they're going to get blitzed out of the water by the likes of Saudi Arabia and other countries that are starting to put on exceptionally valuable races but I, I guess that's something we can talk about you later on you put that so politely i was going to say throw money at it but yes <laughs> yeah yeah basically they just threw it against the wall and said come play um and of course it's hard not to you know particularly if you're an owner and uh mm-hmm. prize money has been that was one of the great things about the breeders cup this year the 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 purses were the exact same value as last year. Whereas, yeah. and you saw it, Naomi, because you were saying it to me off air before we started recording the Breeders' Cup show, that British Champions Day, for all that I love Ascot, that's a great track, um, British Champions Day's prize money was down 40%. And you could see it. You could see it in the horses who turned up. You know, Cameco decided, they, well, he didn't, but uh, his owner decided, now nah, we're going to the Breeders' Cup. And that may very well be because his his wife is American. Um, Sheikh Fad's wife is American, possibly. But, you know, Oshin Murphy was very much of the opinion that the horse was going to go to the QE2 first and then travel over, like taking both races. And we saw horses take in Champions Day and the Breeders' Cup, um, Circus Maximus, for, for example. So... Um, yeah, I, I, look, there's there is a very strong anti-attitude to um, 
to drugs of any kind being used in, in racing. But the, the interesting thing is that um, just after the Breeders' Cup, um, or was it just be, it was just before the Breeders' Cup, actually, uh, on the 31st of October, David Jennings uh, from the Racing Post wrote an article based on an interview that Jim Bulger, the man I mentioned earlier on, the legend himself, who's got a really good horse in his hands for next season called Max Sweeney, to watch out for as a three-year-old, um, he said that it's the number one problem in Irish racing, uh, with the headline then saying, Bulger demands more drug testing. And he was quoted saying, I'm inclined to think that we have had instances in the past where action wasn't taken when it should have been. And he has, he has basically opened an awful lot of people's eyes and, uh, and made people go, wait, what? And I'll just read a couple of the quotes from, me, from him here to you. He says, I have knowledge of problems and I would like to see the IH or B. Now, IH or B are basically the, the enforcers. Um, HRI are the group who, who run Irish racing. and they're, Horse they're Racing from- Ireland. Horse Racing right. Ireland, exactly. Yeah. Yes, nicely done. Nicely done, Naomi. Well, I'm just trying to explain it to all our listeners who have never heard of these governing bodies before. Yes, yes. Why you say HRI when you can say, Naomi? Horse Racing Ireland. Nicely done. Exactly. That's why Naomi earns the big bucks. Uh, so Bulger said in this interview with the Irish Field, I have knowledge of problems and I would like to see the uh, IHRB, so the enforcers of Horse Racing Ireland, stepping up to the plate. There needs to be more rigorous testing, but action has to happen after that testing has taken place. I'm inclined to think that we've had instances in the past where action wasn't taken when it should have been. It's not a level playing field, and I would say that it's the number one problem in Irish racing. The IHRB gets a huge budget from Horse Racing Ireland, and it needs to start spending it properly it's not up to scratch at the moment anyway, that's for sure. Uh, and we need more. Um, there is science and technology in hair testing which can detect steroids in samples from hair going back years. It might be expensive, but you just need to carry out these tests on a couple of a couple of a dozen and it would act as a deterrent. Now, there's two ways of looking at this, Naomi. He could be easily talking about, because Jim Bulger is Jim Bulger, right? He's a very interesting character. Jim Bulger could literally be talking about jockeys because there's been instances where jockeys have failed drugs tests uh, in France, for example, and are waiting on the B sample to come through. It's almost certainly that he's talking about horses. It's almost certainly that that's what he's talking about, particularly when he mentions steroids. And what I would say to that is that... um, and again, if you kind of double back to uh, films from the 1980s like uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and um, Wall Street, uh, greed is good. Wherever there is the potential to make money, somebody is going to try and act on that. And we would be incredibly naive in the UK, in Ireland, and in France to think that there is not certain people who are administering illegal substances into their horses. Now, first of all, I'm appalled by that action. Secondly, we have proof of this because the high-profile evidence is Mohamed Al-Zaruni and Godolphin. This guy was hailed as a hero. Uh, he was training horses in Maidan, and he was winning basically every single race. I think he might have gone through the card one day. 
he gets promoted to second senior trainer, we'll say, for Godolphin. So Saeed bin Saror had always been the face of the training operations for Godolphin. Now you've got Mohammed Al-Zaruni alongside. And Mohammed Al-Zaruni is getting better results. And uh, he ends up uh, getting embroiled in a situation where one of his horses fails a drugs test and immediately the BHA spring into action. And it turns out that there's at least 10 of his horses who fail. And uh, when you look back at this and you look at the horses who failed the drugs tests, one of them was the horse who stopped Camelot from winning the Triple Crown. Now, the Triple Crown in America is a huge thing. It's not as big over here, but the Triple Crown races in the UK are the 2,000 and 1,000 guineas, so 2,000 for the Colts, 1,000 guineas for the Phillies, uh, the Derby and the Oaks, the St. Ledger. Right, So if you win all three, so the Guineas is over a mile, the Derby a mile four, and then you've got the St. Ledger over a mile six. Win all three, and you are the Triple Crown hero. The last horse to do it was Nijinsky. I have a painting of Nijinsky in my sitting room. Um, hero. I don't really think it's going to be done again. But Camelot and Coolmore were incredibly sporting to go for it because the idea in breeding is, and I've spoken to Coolmore about this before, is the second a horse enters the gate in the St. Ledger, they become completely devalued as a stallion. Nobody wants them. Yeah. They're Long just seen distance, as influence. E- yeah. Exactly, Naomi. And they're seen as as a, as a jumps prospect instead, uh, which is sad, but that's that's the way it's seen. But this would not have been the case with Camelot. If he'd won that, people would have been queuing up to, to breed to him. Um, whether or not the horse on the day was doped to the eyeballs, full of the stuff that Mohammed Al-Zaruni was giving his horses, remains to be seen. We don't know. And to be fair to Coolmore, they're so classy, they didn't challenge it. Uh, they didn't say, well, we demand an investigation be open. Senator, I demand an investigation be open into this case. Uh, they handled it extremely well and uh, just went, you know, look, we took our beating on the day with grace and dignity and we'll do the same now. Um, because the horse on the day did not fail the drugs test. But when he was tested out of training, when the BHA turned up, he did he did test positive. Um so Mohamed Al-Zaruni was thrown out of the game. The worrying thing about that is he was thrown out of the game within the space of three days. There should have been a full, detailed yeah. investigation into who was involved, who was, the, who was the supplier of the illegal substances, who was procuring these illegal substances, um, how many times was this being done, who else knew about it. And the whole thing just got wrapped up very, very quickly. Uh, I'm not particularly comfortable with that. It's not how we do things here in Ireland. In Ireland, um, there is a famous instance where Philip Fenton, who won the Irish Gold Cup, which is now part of the Dublin Racing Festival, which is a fantastic... You'd see it on TVG. It's it's one of the best weekends racing in the world, in my opinion. Um, It is jumps racing, but, you know, come on over when when you're allowed in 2028 and uh, come on over to Ireland and and watch the best jumps horses in the world take each other on. Um, But it it emerged that he had been involved in putting uh, banned substances into horses. So Philip Fenton was thrown out of the game unceremoniously and... uh, Journalists, to be fair, did excellent work in 
exposing exactly what had gone on. There was a full investigation into the whole thing. And um, he is now, time has passed and he is now able to train again. But yep. the question is like, who wants to, you know, maybe somebody wants to be involved with him, but the, the leading owners aren't exactly queuing up to, to go to Philip Fenton. And and perhaps he made a mistake. We all make mistakes, but um, I, I don't like that kind of, uh, behavior at all and i certainly don't like it when uh you know if if uh, if an athlete who is trained all their life to succeed and suddenly and they're told by their coaches you're the best and they beat everybody at school and they beat everybody at college and suddenly they turn up to a track event and somebody completely annihilates them and they're depressed and they can't understand how they're not as good as them and they turn to illegal substances. I can kind of understand that to a certain extent because it's you making the decision. It's that person is choosing to inject that stuff in there. A racehorse doesn't have a choice in the matter. So I, 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 I do not, uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm disgusted by it quite frankly. Uh, and the worst case of all was also in the UK, um, Howard Johnson. Howard Johnson was um, training for a very high profile owner um, he became a big name. He'd been training for a number of years. He became a very big name very, very quickly until it emerged that, um, brace yourself for this one, Naomi, because I'm not sure you know this story. Um, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but I'm not sure you're aware of this story. I don't think I am. Uh, Howard Johnson was severing the nerves that, um, tell racehorses they're in pain. Oh, I know I know about people severing nerves on horses in general, even when we're talking about show horses and, and show jumpers, uh, because otherwise they're lame. It's it's it, it's um yeah. I, I literally feel sick thinking about it. So yes. He continue. was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and that is the light side of the story. I will not mm -hmm. go into any more detail. If you want to go and research Harry Johnson, you're more than welcome oh, to. Sure. That's that's the light side of what I'll say about it. Um so he ultimately was um, thrown out of the game. And I think the time has been now passed and he can come back in and train if he wants to. Uh, yeah, but, but do it, we want people like that back into the no, school? Like, no. quite frankly, I don't. Like, we don't. No. Why, why would you? I would say no. But then again, there will, be, there will be plenty of people who will say, well, hang on a second. Isn't there... Isn't the whole point of the judicial system that you punish someone and that they learn from their mistakes and that you give them the opportunity to be able to then come back and and prove prove that it was a mistake they shouldn't have done it and and now they're better like we have a, an endless list of jockeys who have indulged in um, narcotics over the years and have been caught for it and then came back uh, and and then scaled the upper echelons of racing and and actually became absolute heroes. And every now and again, a broadcaster will choose to mention, and remember that time that you were, you know, uh, at your absolute lowest and, and caught for it. European, UK and Irish jockeys, and, and for that matter, trainers, do not like to be asked those questions whatsoever. I don't think what? anyone likes to be asked those questions. Like, but, but not I, I, the Americans but neither. I don't think anyone likes to be put on the spot about anything that has happened, particularly in the past, that it might not be as proud of or yeah, happy with or disagree with, for that matter. 
particularly if you've gone through the whole rehab program and you're you've beaten it you know you've beaten your addiction and whatever it was that drove you to to use those those um particular uh stimulants and those particular um uh drugs that weren't performance enhancing but were just like making you feel euphoric um but i have seen american jockeys be asked about it and answer it eloquently um whereas you know over here they'd nearly punch the interviewer in the face <laughs> which i wouldn't right, i wouldn't noted, really them, right? do not ask jockeys about their <laughs> they won't do it to you neil past. <laughs> they won't do it to you but um what because i'm so good at boxing and i would dodge them damn right damn right <laughs> Uh, you no, would have right, right. To get back on the on the serious note, it's yeah. Well, I, I think there's a difference here, though. That if you're looking at people, like you mentioned, they make that choice, and if they've beaten it, it's something that they did to themselves. And and oh, I wouldn't say that 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 makes it okay, but that makes it a completely different scenario than when it comes to horses who don't know what's going on, who don't realize they can't feel any pain in their legs and keep running until something terrible happens. Which is also why in the United States they've been cracking down on this very you know severely because mm -hmm. we we've gotten to that stage that there is no space for that in our sport. It never should have been, and I think that they're just trying to to get ahead of whatever people can come up with in terms of drugs and, and stimulants and things that could be performance enhancers to stop them or disencourage them from using it. And I, I fully support that. And I think all of us that love horses and love horse racing do. And I feel like that's in a way a, a common goal and maybe not always is it seen as that. And there's a lot of, you know, infighting going on. Yeah. Just to expand on what Jim Bolger was saying, by the way, um, my impression of, because like Jim is Jim and he likes to, to say stuff and just kind of leave it hang there and like leave it open to your own interpretation. But <laughs> my, my impression of it was, um, the way he was talking about it is that he's talking about the middle to lower end scale of racing. And I think that that's where you tend to find out about these things that you know, the upper echelon of racing I think that the, with the exception of Mohamed Al-Zaruni, uh, the, the mentality of the very best that we have in, in horse racing, the very best trainers, the very best uh, jockeys, they want to succeed on merit. They want to succeed on, through their own ability. And yeah. they're not interested in any substance-enhancing thing unless they go to a track go to compete at a major event where they're told, well, you can run on Lasix, and Lasix primarily helps with bleeding. So, and horses do tend to do that, and we often don't hear about it. Um, do, so, do you think that the Europeans, like the European public, that is what, that watched the Breeders' Cup and sees their European runners go over and use Lasix, do you feel like they judge them for that? No, I think the vast majority, I think there, is, there are some who certainly do, but I think the vast majority go, well, the Americans are doing it, so why wouldn't we? Yeah. And and I also think that they look at, like, Lasix ends up being explained in detail, like we explained it on the Final Forum podcast, and um, you've explained it on, on your show, of course, uh, Endless Times, Talk Racing to Me. Um, and uh, to be fair to NBC, they explain it. You know, they explain, and this horse will run on the Lasix, and here's why. Um, so I, I think that 
we do a pretty decent job of explaining why it is that horses run on those. There will always be people who are completely anti-drugs and anti-anything um, that could uh, advance a horse's potential uh, through the use of, um, of medication. Um, but I, I also think that some of those, and look, they're entitled to their opinion, but the vast majority of European, our vast majority of European, British and Irish fans, I think just look at it and go, yeah, great. Aidan O'Brien's won the Breeders' Cup mile with a one, two, three, and don't care that they were on Lasix. Like they just, they just don't care. Um, because you will hear that the vast majority of the American horses are running on the same thing as well. So uh, if Andre Fab, for example, is taking a moral stance uh, and saying, well, I'm not going to run my horses on Lasix because um, because of, of this particular reason, and Andre notoriously won't talk to certain journalists um, for, for reasons of his own, um, He's he's a very interesting man to meet at the Grand Prix de Paris meeting on Bastille Day uh, last year. Um, but a, but a gentleman, I must say, my 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 encounter with him was a very good one. But I did notice him basically telling another journalist to um, f off uh, in 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 a polite way that wasn't necessarily so polite. Um, uh, and and. Look, Jessica Arrington's decision not to run on Lasix, again, may be uh, an ethical and moral decision that, that she makes. But again, she's entitled to it. If that's Yeah, it's her prerogative. If, if that's what she wants to do. But it's not like we're talking about uh, every horse that runs at this new major tournament that's going to be run in, let's pick a country, let's, let's pick Sokovia, right? Let's, let's go for a fictional country um, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where there's uh, $20 million for first place and every horse has to be injected with the highest class performing enhancing drugs and every horse gets it and all the jockeys get it as well and let's see who's the best. Like, no one wants that. That sounds terrible. I was exactly. Say, uh, what are you heading at with this? Because I nobody don't like wants, the sound of this at all. Nobody yeah? wants that. Yeah. You know, nobody wants that at True. all. It's the same as, as as the Olympics where people have said, ah, just let them all run on this stuff. No, nobody wants that. You know, we want to see humans perform to their to their absolute peak ability um, yeah. without the enhancement of, uh, of, of, of another, of a drug. Um, and uh, you know, Lasix is uh, Lasix is a, a bleeding drug. So, yeah, by all means, use it. But I, I honestly don't think that the vast majority, like based on on listener interaction with the show and and meeting people and talking to Irish trainers and talking to Irish jockeys, I don't think that the vast majority of people really have any have any um, fear of it. Um, if Lasix was to be introduced into Ireland and the UK. That I think would be something that's a little bit different and would be a, a, a bigger conversation because now it's become a now it's becoming a much bigger topic. But um, well, I highly doubt that will ever happen whilst they're phasing out LASIK in the United States. So I yeah, highly I, doubt that will be the case. Let's move on to a different topic before we spend the whole hour um, talking <laughs> about this. Uh, LASIK. This show is brought to you by yeah, LASIK. But yeah. Exactly. So uh, what I wanted your perspective on is something that was quite recently in the news here was the announcement of the jockey change for Belmont Stakes winner, Kentucky Derby second, Tis the Law, who ran in the 
Breeders' Cup Classic didn't do as well as they would have liked to have seen him done there. And there was a decision to take um, Manny off and in favor of Johnny Velasquez. Uh, Manny Franco, Johnny Velasquez, obviously both di- completely different jockeys, completely different stage of their careers. And, and the idea here is, of course, those situations would have arisen in Europe as well, right? And do trainers slash owners have the right to switch jockeys without being um, kind of bombasted by the public for their decision because it was a little bit like that people were kind of you know going well you can't do that or this and that which in my opinion everyone's free to make their own decisions and it's at the trainer's discretion or the owner's discretion to prefer one over the other but it's a very kind of like it was a you know a high profile topic but I was thinking certainly those kind of things have happened in Europe before too. Yeah they have and they happened this year in fact, uh, there was a very high-profile case with Tom Marquand, who uh, ended up having a phenomenal season, and his his girlfriend Holly Doyle has um, has been a winning machine this year, and I think in the end finished fourth overall on the jockeys' championship. So, uh, any question about female jockeys being able to compete with men was uh, firmly answered. Did you answered. have over 120 winners just this year? Uh, I will back up that with statistics by uh, getting Siri to do the uh, the background work there. But I th- <laughs> I think you are correct. I think you you are indeed correct that 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 is the that is how it all played out. Um, but Tom Marquand is a is a young jockey who is basically he's a young jockey who's going places and um, he's exceptionally talented. Uh, I think every now and again we we tend to build up jockeys a little bit too much and it's not always the most it's not always the thing that we should do um, because, uh, by the way, I'm wrong. Um, Holly Doyle was fifth. It was her uh, her pesky... Oh, no, I am right. I'm right. <laughs> Turns out I'm correct. Um, so Holly Doyle finished fourth overall in the Jockeys' Championship. Uh, if you look at a talented jockey like, just to s- switch this conversation very, very briefly to jump racing, um, you've got Briny Frost in the uk briny is not only brilliant with the media like holly and both of them have exceptionally good personalities but i've met um both of them and they're both lovely people i've met tom and he's he's an absolute gentleman um they they work extremely hard uh but i met briny frost when she was injured and um she was strolling around goodwood in her finest, uh, promoting a particular brand, um, which I'm not going to mention because they ended up getting suspended for, I think, seven months for fraud. So uh, I don't think that we should be mentioning them. But hey, it's public knowledge, so you can go and look it up if you want to. Uh, but she's, a, she's an absolute gem. She's a lovely person. And um, she works in jumps racing, and jumps racing is extremely dangerous, and she knows the risks. She had a life-threatening um, situation when she was younger and she uses that as her motivation to come through uh, and succeed and she has she is one she became the first female jockey to win a grade one in the uk at the cheltenham festival um holly doyle became the first female jockey for 30 years to win a group one at royal ascot uh this year and um over in the jumps in Ireland, and technically on the flat, because she mixes both in between, Rachel Blackmore, 
is proving herself to be an exceptional jockey to the point where we've gone through this, the stats and every single trainer in Ireland, I think bar one, has asked her to ride a horse for, for, for them. And, and you, I don't think you can get a bigger endorsement than that, that every single trainer wants this jockey at some point or another to be on board their horse. And um, she is a, is it a dual grade one winning jockey now at the Cheltenham Festival? And um, an absolute superstar. Like she's, she's phenomenal. Um, but Tom Marquand, to get back on point to your question, Tom Marquand was riding a horse called English King and English King won a derby trial at Lingfield, and all of the time boys, they all went mad about this horse. They all said, oh, the times, the time, my goodness, the time figure this horse has put up is just absolutely phenomenal. Oh, my God, this horse is going to be a machine. Certainty for the derby. And he's owned by Bjorn Nielsen, who also owns um, the magnificent Stradivarius. Yep. And he was told by the trainer, Ed Walker, uh, look, it's your ride unless the owner makes a decision. And, um, and that's what happened. Frankie Dettori made a phone call and Frankie Dettori got the ride uh, because he has this relationship with Bjorn Nielsen. And um, it was, it blew up into a very, very big thing. And Nick Luck was actually on on the Final Forum podcast the week it happened. And uh, and he said, look, this this kind of thing happens in the happens in America the whole time. Uh, let's be honest about it. He rode the horse once. He has no entitlement to the ride. Uh, the owner has a good relationship with uh, with Bjorn Nielsen. And, and Frankie, Frankie Dettori has a good relationship with Bjorn Nielsen. Therefore, why is there a big fuss being made about this? There's no need to be. Everybody should just be moving on with their lives, and he was right. You know, he was absolutely right. I, I've I've gone overboard in his reaction there. By the way, that's like a an American show, um, dramatically doing the the reenactment of uh, of Nick Nick Luck's dramatic reaction to Tom Marquand being jogged off. Um, but what was Hold price- on, Nick Luck isn't dramatic. Nick Luck is expressive, so he would have just Ooh. clearly made his point. Well done. <laughs> Well done, by the way. That's exactly how it was. Yes. Well, Luck- yeah, he is. That you know, that's why he's what like ten times broadcaster of the year. Uh, yeah, at least, and and should just win it every single year. The only other person who I should agree. come, who, who should come with within, um, the only other person who should be up for nomination for for broadcaster of the year is uh, Lydia Hislop and Sean Boyce. Um, racing in in the UK and Ireland is extremely lucky, and and, and sorry, uh, Gary O'Brien. And I'm saying that from the from the point of view of if you're talking about anchors, if you're talking about people who present race day coverage, I would include Alex Hammond in that list as well. Actually, so we'll expand it to four. So it should be uh, Nick Luck, Lydia Hislop, Alex Hammond, Sean Boyce. Um, they're the four who are absolutely outstanding and they're the ones who should be up for nomination. Um, to get back to the Derby, uh, there's all this huff, all this huffing and puffing and all this uh, 
this absolute uh, carnage going on. Tamar Kwan had ridden English King twice. You know, he doesn't get to ride English King in the Derby. People are making a big thing about it on ITV. I had to turn off ITV's coverage because there was so much being said about it. And I was like, just there, you're blowing this up out of proportion altogether. Um, in the end, the Time Boys were wrong about English King. And the stride analysis was wrong about English King. He finishes fifth. And where does Tom Marquand finish? Second on Khalifa Sat. <laughs> so oh, that was quite the story, wasn't it? So Tom Marquand's not really going to care, especially when, and this is this is quite sad, actually. Um, the jockey who was due to ride Joseph O'Brien's horse in the St. Ledger tested positive for COVID-19. Now, he's a young fella, and um, you would like to think that he will have a bright and exciting career in, ahead of him. Mm-hmm. But obviously it meant that he couldn't go to the UK. And uh, for some reason, Tom Marquand did not have a ride in the St. Ledger, but was booked to be at Doncaster. So Joseph O'Brien rings him and says, would you mind riding my horse in the St. Ledger? No problem at all. And he goes and wins a classic. And uh, what has English King done since uh, this big big media fiasco? Well, Frankie Dettori rode him again at Goodwood when he was sent off favourite. Mogul beats him by three and a quarter lengths. He then goes to Longchamp, and I kid you not, I got abuse for this on the old tweet machine, Naomi, which of course we're all used to now at this stage, especially yep. the, those accounts that suddenly emerge the month that we're in, like uh, with I, lots of numbers in their names too. But yes, I, let's move on. <laughs> I, I, account created November twenty twenty. Oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, d- block. Um, Ed Walker said on Sky Sports Racing with uh, the fantastic Sean Boyce that I think either in the St. Ledger or in the Grand Prix de Paris, uh, which was rescheduled um, to replace the the uh, the ARC trial on, on, on that Sunday, uh, and they hadn't made their minds up about which race they were going to run in, that he will prove this weekend that he is indeed the best middle distance three-year-old cult in Europe. And Which obviously I, never happened. So this is that the moral of the story that Tis the Law is never going to do anything ever again and well, Manny Frank well, gets an well, amazing horse to ride. Well, I, I saw that and I just went, coffee went everywhere and I burst out laughing and I made a thing about it on the podcast going, All right, love called and uh, she wants a word with you, Mr. Mr. Walker. And um, he got thrashed again by Mogul in the Grand Prix de Paris and has now been sold for nearly a million and will continue his racing career in Australia where he'll probably mop up loads of great ones down there because we know that Australian racing is rubbish. Um, but like, like essentially, there was, a big, there was a big fuss made about it and, and it was all media-driven. It wasn't really been driven by, by fans of racing. And the other example I would give you is... Paul Townend on Hurricane Fly. Um, Hurricane Fly had suffered injuries that ruled him out of running in Cheltenham for a good number of times. He was finally going to get there. And uh, Ruby Walsh had been injured for the entire season. So Paul Townend had ridden Hurricane Fly in every single race. And of course, they cruised to victory in all of them. And um, the question was asked... And, and I was at the William Mullins Open Day, and a journalist kept asking Willie, is Paul Townend going to keep the ride on Hurricane Fly? To which he started getting frustrated and said, no, Ruby Walsh is my first jockey. Yeah. 
Um, and that's the way it is. And of course, Ruby did ride him, and uh, Ruby won his first champion hurdle on him. Uh, the next day, Paul Tannen goes and wins the Fred Winter handicap hurdle. Everybody's happy. Paul Tannen gets a Cheltenham win. He's got multiple Cheltenham wins to his name now, including two Gold Cups on album photo. But I think that this kind of thing can just get blown out of proportion. Um, it's also an example, I think, that you know, unless you have a retainer, jockeys are in the freelance game. And uh, as broadcasters, we're in the freelance game. We're not entitled to just say, yeah, that's mine. You know, somebody, somebody above you or somebody who owns it, and particularly when it comes to, to a racehorse, the owner's uh, Sakatoga stable, inevitably, they're the ones who are going to make the decision. And they made it. And that's that. Everybody move on. And um, well, it, I think that it was just it struck a chord with people because, you know, this is Manny Franco's first real big horse that kind of propelled him into the spotlight. He's a young jockey. So people were kind of, I don't know, in a way, perhaps feeling for him. Johnny Velasquez, Hall of Fame rider, phenomenal rider, of course, just won his first Breeders' Cup classic on Authentic. Mm. It's it's I think people just, you know, when you're sort of talking with your heart a little bit, that might be the case because if the trainer wasn't happy with the ride that the horse has been given, it's his right to make a change because he's employed by the owners to do what the owners will believe is in their best interest. So it, it was a very interesting, interesting dynamic. And like you mentioned, it's happened so many times before and no doubt Manny Franco will come across another very, very good horse and we'll see Tis the law again in the Pegasus at Gulfstream Park in January with Johnny Velasquez on board, which will be very, very interesting. But I want to talk with you about some more topics as well, namely something that's been playing here in the US, but now flared up quite strongly in the UK due to an interview that very esteemed broadcaster and, and wonderful human being in general, Rishi Prasad, gave about his experience of... Uh, you know, racial diversity in horse racing, being a minority, trying to find your place in an industry that can be coined as being, you know, seen as a certain way with the majority of people in certain positions uh, being being white, being male. And he was so candid about it, but got a lot of backlash. And I know that there's been a lot of said about it already, but I think it's interesting to maybe contrast and compare it to in the United States where there also have been calls for more diversity within the sport uh, very actively and I've been very fortunate that for example based on, on my gender I've never found that I've been discriminated against in any way but that is a product I think of the pro progress that has been made over all these years of all the incredible people that have come before me so it's something that obviously is very, it can be very delicate in a way, like it can mm. be very difficult to talk about with people, can be very triggering. And I think that's the case in, in the United States as well as in Europe. I don't think there's any country that people are, don't get triggered by, by something like that because they take it to heart clearly from the reactions uh, to Rishi's candid interview. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm... I'm friends with Rishi, and I'm very proud to be able to say that. And um, I'm I'm particularly friends with Rishi when it comes to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, we drove the cameramen absolutely insane 
uh, at Royal Ascot with our speculation of Infinity War had just come out <laughs> and we were going to have to wait a year for Endgame and we were speculating about how was it going to play out and who was going to be the one that would ultimately fix everything and how would it and we kind of got it right we were kind of got it wrong but he is such uh, a kind person to be around and more importantly uh just in terms of talking about his character before we get into what is an incredibly serious subject um rishi is the kind of person who will go out of his way to help you and uh you know we don't know each other particularly well i mean i've i've watched rishi on the television for years and the first time i met him was uh going into a production meeting and um immediately as i'm walking in immediately he puts his hand out and says emmett nice to meet you and in my head it should have been the other way around it should have been me going rishi pleasure to meet you uh and it was just that he saw me before i saw him and um i you know we went for for a coffee after the incredibly boring production meeting <laughs> <sighs> anyway uh, we went for a coffee after that and um i told him what a what an admirer i am of his work and the fact that rishi has has gone on and gone to the bbc and covered various different sports he's covered the olympics he's covered all kinds of 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 different sporting events that's um that's a very strong thing uh to be able that's a strong endorsement of rishi's ability as a broadcaster because with the greatest of respect um and and i'll use nick luck as an example again like and if if your if your listeners are aware of lydia hislop um or gary o'brien or um or Sean Boyce, uh, I will say that any of those people that I've just mentioned could very easily step out of horse racing and present a different sport or even present a current affairs show. Like Nick Luck would have no problem doing a politics show in in the UK like um, Mar on Sunday, which is a big show, or Question Time. Uh, Lydia Hislop would be brilliant at that, as would Boyce and the others. Um, and and Rishi could do that too. And what Rishi is exceptionally good at is playing his ability down to allow others to, to be elevated. And and what I mean by that is he allows he will play himself down to allow jockeys to be elevated, to allow trainers to be elevated, to allow new people who are part of the team for that particular point in time, like me to be elevated um and he's exceptionally good at that and and it it takes it takes humility and it takes ability to be able to go and do all that so i i have the utmost respect for him um i whatsapped voice messaged him after all of this thing blew up because that's the new way of doing things naomi no one calls anyone anymore (laughs) We, we send WhatsApp voice messages instead. And you're getting very used to the fact that this is something that I do on a regular basis. And um, So uh, Emmett, explain quite briefly what exactly blew up. It was an interview that Rishi did explaining his experience and that created some backlash, right? 
Yeah, so Rishi does this interview with... Rishi works for Racing TV, I should say, as well. He works for ITV. But um, racing's very lucky. There are two dedicated racing channels. There's Sky Sports Racing and there's Racing TV. And they both have various different rights to different tracks. And on that, Josh Appiafi, who's um, an incredibly successful individual in, in his own right, um, he, he made a, an absolute fortune working with Betfair in, in the early days. He asked him about um, diversity in racing. And um, he asked him about uh, the failings of diversity in, in racing. And Rishi was asked a question, and he gave a very honest and open answer. And I would love to tell you some of the stuff that Rishi told, told me back in 2018. We were, we were having a few drinks. Everyone's nice and relaxed. We're having the crack. And uh, some of the stuff that Rishi has been subjected to when known as a broadcaster in racing, and I, and I can't say it because I don't have his permission to, and it's that conversation was off the record. And so I am not going to breach his trust. But it made me so mad uh, to hear what he had been put through. And he gives an eloquent interview to Josh Appiafi where he talks about how there is a diversity problem within racing. There is a, an issue within the sport. And essentially, Naomi, it's the reaction to it afterwards that is what really should be focused on. Um, I'll just give you an example of, of one of the things that he was saying. He was talking about the governing bodies of, of um, horse racing in, in the UK, right? And there are various different boards um, that, that are involved. So the BHA, there are 11 people on the board. They're all white. There is a member council of the National Trainers Federation, 19 people on that, all white. Uh, there's a member board of Professional Jockeys Association, entirely white. A nine-member board of the Racehorse Owners Association, entirely white. There is an executive council of the National Association of Racing Staff, 14 people on that, all of them are white. And of the Racehorse Owners Association, the nine people involved in that, all of them are white. Now, Rishi is just asking the question, what is the problem with racing? Like, how is it that we can't have diversity in, on our screens? Why is it that we can't have diversity at the heart of our sport? Uh, I don't necessarily agree with Josh Appiafi's idea of, uh, of how to, to handle this. And I don't have the answer either. And here's, here's the thing, uh, Naomi, you are almost certainly going to have been subjected to more difficult things than me in our various um, ventures to our career in racing because you're a woman. You're a woman. Um, I, was, I was raised by my mother. Um, you know, my, my, my father was, was very much not in the picture. Uh, he was for, for quite a while, but um, we managed to get rid of him because he was a vile individual, quite frankly. And and he was a and he was a brutal individual. He was a, a violent and um, uh, a violent and vicious individual, and and a very vindictive person. Um, but in my steps to where I am in broadcasting, 
um, I will not have faced some of the things that you will have faced. And it may just be a, a, a sly comment. It may just be a sly remark. But at the end of the day, we're both white. And there is a, a conversation about white privilege. Um, here's what I'll say. Uh, to that, that, um, you know, white privilege means that you get, you know, you have no idea and you get everything. Here's here's what I'll say. We were broke when I was young. Um, We had no money for for me to go to college. And I was not born into racing and have no racing background. So, honestly, I am truly blessed that I have the mother that I have, who is an incredible inspiration to me every single day in the way that she conducts herself in life, in the way that she handles herself in life, and how she has taught me to deal with other people and to be respectable and uh, and to be um, respective of anyone no matter who they are or where they've come from. And um, I I think that you probably had a similar upbringing. I think there's a lot of us who are listening to this have probably had a similar upbringing. Um, But it was very, very difficult for me to get into broadcasting. And once I got there, I had to work extremely hard to stay there and to work up the ladder, and to work up to get to the positions that I'm in, and to get to the place where I am now. Um, I suspect that along the way, for you and your own journey, it was harder for you. Probably there were certain comments made along the way um, because of because of your gender, which is unacceptable. For Rishi, and as a friend, hearing what he's gone through, uh, I wanted to go punch a wall. And I think it's remarkable, first of all, that Rishi managed to get himself into the position that he's in. But not only that, that he has kept himself in this position and that he is universally respected throughout the industry. Like whenever we have Rishi on the show, the Final Forum podcast listeners love him. And he's incredibly knowledgeable He's he's got a, a fantastic personality, and he's great crack. And when you're able to combine those three things together, you've got somebody who, and he's also incredibly talented. So combine those those four things together, you've got somebody who just has it, and and you can talk about anything. Um, but when I read that piece, um, I looked at it and went. What's wrong with what he what he's saying? How is there anything wrong in in what he is saying? And and I'll I'll make the comparison with and it's just from a, a pop culture reference. Um, black Panther was the first black superhero, and the film yeah, like there were there were executives in Hollywood who were like no 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 can't do that can't do that. The film made billions of dollars. It's a huge success. And God rest him, the man who played the role of T'Challa of, uh, of Black Panther, um, Chadwick Boseman, and and I I still I I still well up when I see him on screen. 
had such charisma and was so brilliant in that role. And it's such a fascinating character. And it's such a, look, it's an alternative reality kind of thing. And some people like that stuff and some people don't, and that's fine. But when I go and look, I, there was an, another show that I was doing where we were looking at Hollywood and the problems that are there in Hollywood. And we were looking at diversity issues there. And there was a really good point being made about the fact that, yeah, the black characters tend to be the sidekick. They're not necessarily always the lead role. That's not always the case, but but sometimes it is. And I don't understand. Like, if we're going to move forward as, as a society, then we need Naomi Tucker on camera. Because when people are watching this coverage, whether they're streaming it on YouTube and they've put it on their smart TV or they're watching it on their phone, if if your daughter is watching it alongside you, she's going to go, oh, who is this woman? Who Who is she? And immediately you can relate to that person. Because when, I, when you and I watched television when we were younger, there was almost always someone we could relate to. Um, sometimes Hollywood would have the, the Irish person portrayed as, Bigara and Bigara, ah, to be sure, to be sure, grand soft day out there and all that, you know, and you'd be like, that's not Ireland, come on, man. But aside from that, you know, we're white and, and we could relate to the people on screen. That wasn't necessarily what was being done for for um, for people of color, and Rishi makes uh, incredibly intelligent points and intel and incredibly intelligent arguments. And one of the finest journalists that we have in racing in the UK and Ireland is a man named Lee Modisad, and um, Lee has written about this, and. Lee is is openly gay, and he receives abuse for his sexuality. And I'm like, I, I don't get this. Like, I honestly don't. I do not understand how you can have a pop at a man for writing an article saying, and literally the headline is, racing has a racial diversity problem, and Rishi Prasad was right to say so. And then goes into detail in, in, in an eloquent in an eloquent article, where he states why it was the right thing for him to do. Um, why is it that uh, we're not seeing the emergence of people of color into the upper echelons of the training ranks? Why are well, we not? It's, well, it's it's not just horse racing that's dealing with this. It's prevalent throughout other industries as well and of course we haven't mentioned it here but in in the united states with the black lives matter movement which isn't mm. clearly isn't just about you know equal representation in the workforce it's about treating everyone as the equals that we are and and allowing uh, all those lives to be valued at the same value that we are all important regardless of our skin color and of course i don't feel like i have a leg to stand on when it comes to that but we have someone on our airwaves here jonathan kinchin who very eloquently came out about this and you know he's Brilliant. a person of color on the fox sports airways with america's day at the races saratoga live uh, i'm very fortunate to call him my friend and, and colleague. And he's actually the person that got me involved in, in the podcast scene. And he's spoken out about this so candidly, so openly, so courageously as well, because this is something that is so 
so painful and so prevalent. And hence the fact that now this kind of came to the fore in, in England as incredibly painful as it is. I am happy that this is happening because without this, we can't move forward, can we? No, we can't. And and we can't move forward. And you're right, by the way, Jonathan Kinchin is an absolute legend who I've had the honor of working with as well. And what a guy. Like just what a in the words of Kate Tracy, who's a regular on the podcast, what a dude. He's just <laughs> he just has it. And and you're right, he wrote a yeah. very eloquent article as well. But like I I do not understand like, like genuinely, so our brains work differently. Um, but I, I read Rishi's article and I went, that makes perfect sense. Like, what's what's wrong with that? And the reason that I referenced Black Panther and and brought that into the conversation is because there clearly was a a feeling in Hollywood that, yeah, you know, you can't, uh, well, we can't really do that. And it's it's like what we watch on screen and what we watch on television influence us. Uh, in ways that we cannot possibly begin to understand. Have you watched the the, um, the documentary, The Social Dilemma? I haven't yet. That's about the social media regulating our lives, right? Yeah, you're about yes, to get I it. Yes, I haven't. You're... You know why I haven't? Because I, I know, I, this sounds terrible, I know what it stands for and I know what it will say, say says about our subconscious being influenced by everything that we take in on a daily basis and that nowadays we spend seven, eight hours a day glued to our phones, which completely is altering how we perceive the world. I mean, I think that's the gist of it, right? Am I, am I right? Pretty much, but it goes yeah. into it goes into the more nefarious side of things as well. Yeah, I haven't, I think, I'm mere, mere fear of what I'm going to find there. I haven't watched watched it yet. I, w- um, I would strongly recommend to listeners of the um, Talk Racing to Me podcast to watch the documentary uh, Hypernormalization, which predicted an awful lot of what has happened before the dreaded B word came out. Um, and it just goes into, um, it just goes into, uh, into a fascinating detail uh, about how how the world and society has been working and how and how it changes decade after decade after decade and um with social media yeah the um i would highly recommend that you watch that documentary you're you're right you pretty much have it nailed but there are things there that that you need to see but what the thing that i take issue with is and and i strongly recommend that people just go and read rishi's article i mean i think that that's really what you should do but what, what I take issue with is the reaction to it. I take issue with the fact that uh, Lee Modisad writes an article which is in support of this and um, is eloquent and is uh, a fantastic article. And he ends up getting called every name under the sun that you can possibly imagine uh, because of his sexuality. What the hell does that have to do with anything? What does what does that have to do with the man's ability to do his job? It doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, and what does well, nor Rish- does skin color color have well, anything to do with your? But what does Rishi's do what does Rishi's skin color or anybody's skin color have to do with their ability to do their job? You know, yeah. if you nor their gender nor their sexual orientation. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't. It like none of that matters, right? So 
if you've got five people lined up for for a job, and and you and one of them is white, and five of them, all five are equally qualified, but four of them lead the way with just extra little bits of of work, either. Um, they have been psychoanalyzed and uh, one of them has a far greater work ethic. Uh, one of them has a far greater determination to succeed. Uh, one of them is highly ambitious and and the other person um, maybe has like um, a softer side to them and, and may not take criticism well, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they do exceptional work. And you end up hiring the white person who was less qualified. Well, I'm sorry. And again, don't want to get your podcast demonetized, but I say this stuff the whole time. That is fucking bullshit. It's absolutely bullshit. And uh, like you watch, this is, this is really what I don't understand. Watch the NBA coverage. I watch the NBA. I'll be honest about it. I don't understand half of it, but the NFL... Uh, you know, we've been in lockdown, so I've been desperately seeking sport for a long time. So now I'm just ingesting everything. Give give me all the sport you can. Uh, but I'm a huge NFL fan, uh, and I'm a massive Dallas Cowboys fan. How about them Cowboys? You know, the greatest running back, in my opinion, in the history of the game is Emmett Smith. Not just because he shares his name with me, even though the spelling of his name is slightly different. Um, but what do those ex-players end up doing? They end you know, you know part of the part of the triplets. Michael Irvin, one of the, Michael Irving, one of the greatest wide receivers of all time, end up working in pre and post show analysis. So why is it that they can end up right that that former NFL players who are people of color can end up in broadcasting? and be not only exceptionally good at breaking down the game and and giving you an insight into what would be going on in the locker room at halftime, but also are exceptionally talented broadcasters. Like, these guys are naturally talented broadcasters because the media is in their face from day one. The second, they, the second they're in college, the media is following them around. Um, so Michael Irvin is a great broadcaster. And... He has fellow people of color alongside him doing NFL coverage. Well, why is that fine? But it's it's not okay for CNN to have uh, more people of color on their on their current affairs coverage. It's not okay for MSNBC to do that. What? I don't get it. I I I, re- I honestly don't. I I don't care if you're if you're um, Barney. The dinosaur, right? And you're purple, and and you come strolling in. If you know your stuff and you're talented, then you have the ability to do an excellent job. Therefore, the broadcaster or the publication or the team or whatever it is should be hiring you. And the idea that there is somehow uh, a group of people who are holding this back is quite scary. It's quite a scary thing to think about, and I and I don't understand it. And and look, we've had we've had terrible instances of racism in Ireland, um, and let's not pretend that we don't. Um, we've had terrible instances of racism in the United Kingdom, but um, 
I'm afraid the USA leads the way. And, and it's sad to see. But Rishi writing that article, or doing that interview, I should say, Rishi doing that interview, and then Lee writing that article are two incredibly important things. And, I, and if you can, and you should be able to watch it because it's, it's free to air, um, watch Rishi on Look on Sunday, where he gets to go into more detail because he's now with Nick Luck, who's one of the best broadcasters in the business. And he gets to expand more. And also Nick and Rishi are friends um, on on what it is that he's saying. And again, I watch that and I go, yeah, that makes sense to me. That that makes perfect sense to me. Um, You know, why should we not have, uh, let's just say, for example, right? And and it's it's different in the podcast world because it's just audio, right? But let's just say that uh, NBC go mad and they decide to bring me over to be involved in the coverage, right? And uh, there are five people involved in, in the coverage. Well, why can't it be Jonathan Kitchen, um, you, Naomi, me, um, Nick Luck, Rishi Prasad, um, Francesca Kamani? Uh, did I say five? Yeah, let's go with that. Why can't it be, you know, mixed genders? Like, why can't we have women in there? Why can't we have uh, people of color in there? Um, are pe- like, are people afraid? Like, is, is that what, it, what this is? Are people scared that, that um, coverage is going to change? Like, I, I, I don't get it. I honestly don't. And, I, and I, I, the amount of times that I've hit the block button on Twitter this year um, is probably record levels. Because you're you're easily enough able to identify troll accounts, and I'm not giving my headspace to negativity like that. But what just, Rishi just to, just to get back on what you were saying, what is it that people are afraid of? Um, I'll put my uh, my psychology major hat on again. It's the upsetting of the status quo. It's anything that's different than what we've done before or in the past, which is something that we value very highly in horse racing as being a slightly uh, conservative sport is putting it mildly. Yeah, is I would agree with that. what's upsetting people. And if people being upset is what it takes to create a path for change, then I think we're on the right path and we should keep doing it. I I completely agree with that. I would, I would also say that um, both Rishi and uh, Lee um, in his article, said Prasad was correct to highlight racing did nothing to acknowledge or support the Black Lives Matter movement, which so many other sports have embraced. Now you may you may agree or disagree with what they stand for, um, and when you go onto their site uh, and and read through their manifesto, there are, there are certain things that I would take issue with, um, like the the um, ending of the the idea of the nuclear family in, in the U S like that, there's stuff like that, that, that I would, that I would be somewhat, mm-hmm. what's this about? But for the most part, that movement is, is just people who are not prepared to take it anymore. And they want to stand up and be heard. And to think that it's 2020, like, and, and I use the, the the year 2020 with trepidation because like this year has just been a clusterfuck 
for so many different things, and everybody has been affected in one way or another. But for them to stand up, for, for BLM to stand up and say, look at us, look at us, well, they shouldn't have to do that. And, well, and clearly what I- they do, because they haven't been heard before to make to create significant change. But I agree I- with you that there hasn't been much time and space allocated to it in horse racing. Now, like I said, on the In The Money podcast, we've discussed it. There has been discussion and Jonathan Kinchin went came forward and there has been discussions on Twitter as well. But in general, as a sport, I wouldn't say that racing horse racing has done much with it. No. It's done nothing. And isn't that, like, racing aside, isn't it sad that there has to be a, a BLM movement? That, you, you know, that this is the year that we're in and that we have all this technology and we have all this ability to broadcast and you are based in America and I'm in Ireland and you and I can do a podcast together and we can talk about a subject that is this sensitive. But we need to talk about it because the people who are in power, and ultimately that's where this problem lies, is that the people who are in power within the various organizations of the sport that we love, but also within politics, simply haven't done enough. And that, to me, is just sad. And it's sad to see the horrific reactions that um, Rishi and both Lee were subjected to on Twitter for simply speaking their mind. And there is nothing in there that is in any way offensive. There's nothing for in, simply in there. asking us as a as a horse racing community to do better because exactly we ought to and we can and we all we're all bound by this incredible love for yeah. horses for racing for the the life that this sport has allowed us to live the friends that we've made I mean yeah. I live in the United States because of horse racing I'm from the Netherlands like how how could that have ever happened without this incredible sport and and. I think they are within their rights and actually they're doing so much more than that. They are stepping up for everyone else that yes. wants to be a part of our sport and that yep. might not have been able to, or hasn't, or is a part of our sport and hasn't been able to uh, find that path of growth yet. They are paving the way. And that that's why I wanted to talk about it. And that's why I thank them. And I wholeheartedly agree with them, but we are going to, move on at some point, even though this is an incredible topic and I I want to talk so much more about it, but I dare say we've made our point very clear. I would just, I would just say that there is a big question to be asked about why, why has uh, the progression in UK racing, why have people of color not progressed up the ranks? Why, why are there not more assistant trainers who are people of color? Why are there not more? Because there are owners who are people of color. There's lots of owners who are people of color, but why are there not trainers who are, and why are there not um, um, assistant trainers who are? And all you have to do is go and look at Maidan and see the success that people of color are having over there. And and maybe that's just the geographical location uh, setup. But anyway, sorry for interrupting your show, Naomi. No, and, uh, no, you're and, fine. And uh, we're going to talk continue. about something else that, that might be a little bit of a, <laughs> a painful point too, but We'll be a, a fair bit shorter on this because I've been following up on the horse racing news in Europe as I always do. And of course, uh, 
Brexit coming up has kind of upended everyone's travel plans when it comes to the movement of horses, whereas there is about 25,000 thoroughbreds that travel between the United Kingdom, Ireland and France annually. And there's now been an advisory stating don't plan to travel thoroughbreds or, or horses of any, you know, in any matter. Uh, the first two weeks of 2021 due to the uncertainty that is still arising from Brexit because there hasn't been uh, a trade deal created yet. There's been no agreement yet. Of course, I want to hear the latest of this from you. Uh, what What is going on here? Good question. What is going on? Tell me, Naomi. <laughs> because honestly, you probably know more than we do. It's an absolute mess. Like this, uh, this Brexit situation is okay. So, so let me let me just break this down really simply, okay? Because there are people who agree with Brexit, and there are people who who do not agree with it, okay? Uh, that's fine. Um, here's what what I will what I will say about the the current situation. If you voted for Brexit, fine. I can actually understand why you did. I can completely and totally understand why you chose to do such a thing. Um, and there have been document, excellent documentaries made about how fed up certain people are with uh, a system that, that is broken. Um, I honestly do not care what your political affiliation is. I don't care if you are conservative, labor, liberal, or you're voting for the monster of England party. Um, it doesn't, who, who are actually a party and they actually run. And uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly do not care what, what your affiliation is in that regard. I grew up around politics. And um, I would have been 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And I saw a lot. And... Um, you can say that your politician, your local politician is a great person, all you want. Uh, I learned fast about politics. And um, yeah. Uh, the people who make promises when they're behind the scenes and they're in a bar, and believe me, I was dragged to them when I shouldn't have been. Uh, there's a lot of them who do not give a flying flamingo about you. What they care about is how much it will benefit them and their interests. And when Brexit was sold to the people of the United Kingdom, at no point, and, he, and this is worrying in terms of the television debates, at no point did anybody bring up the, the Good Friday Agreement, which was a historic uh, deal which ended the war in Northern Ireland. And it's... It's not that long ago that that was going on. And there are incredibly brave men and women who were involved in that. Um, John Hume deserves a, a enormous, enormous praise. Whether you like him or not, Tony Blair, uh, and again, whether you like him or not, Bertie Ahern. Bertie Ahern's mother died while the peace agreement was going on. And he had to stay in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, because he needed, because they were so close to an agreement, he needed to make sure that it got done. Um, and that broke his heart. And Bertie O'Hearn is, 
is a question is is a politician with a lot of questions to answer but he's back on the circuit now and seems to be Mr. Good Guy. Um, but when Brexit was sold, but the, you know, the peace agreement was huge and, um, and it was genuine and arms were thrown away and there was peace in Northern Ireland. That is at serious risk because, um, and I'll just try and explain this to you non-patronizingly in a very, very simple way. The United Kingdom is made up of the nations of England, Wales, and Scotland, who are all on one island, and Northern Ireland. The Republic of Ireland is not part of the United Kingdom. It is a its own republic. It is a member of the European Union, and it does not agree with Brexit. We have no interest in it whatsoever, and the UK government have come to us and said, you know, would you want to join us in this? And we're like, <coughs> no. Um so here's where the real problem is. We're seven weeks away and we've got Boris Johnson who's leading the charge on this. So I'm not confident that anything is going to be, is going to be done at the time of recording to solve this issue. So if there is no deal agreed, then the United Kingdom crash out of Europe. They have then no trade deal and they will have to trade off of the same kind of deal that... Um, a new African Republic country, with the greatest of respect, um, would have to trade off of with massively high percentage rates, tariffs, and all that. Uh, there is no deal with America that is that is made, and uh, there is no um, magic alternative. But the real problem here is Northern Ireland. We race in Down Royal. Uh, Naomi is is aware of that. There's a big track in Down Royal, so horses in the Republic of Ireland on the 1st of January can no longer travel from Dundalk, which is on the border, to Northern Ireland. Stud farms that are in Northern Ireland, uh, and if you've got one in London Derry, for example, which is literally on the edge of the border, cannot go to Donegal, where there may very well be another stud farm. Um, and there could very well be a case of that there's a mayor there who needs to be sent back to a stud farm in Donegal. Can't do it. Cannot do it for those two weeks. And what do we? What have we learned about when they say uh, for the for at least the first two weeks? Well, we were told it's going to be a four week lockdown. Look where we are eight months later. I was going to say when they say the first two weeks, start thinking about multiple months. Right? Exactly. Which could be no. devastating to local businesses as well as trainers wanting to race their horses um, close to the border or even just, you know, in uh, O'Brien sending his horses over to England yeah. to, to run in the classics there. I mean, it would be an absolute shame for the sport, aside from the commercial, uh, the economical impact negative impact you know life-changing negative consequences based on not knowing when when there will be a deal but wasn't there talks about keeping the tripartite agreement standing so that thoroughbreds horses could still travel to those different countries at least that's what i thought there was at some point but now of course reading all the articles it doesn't seem likely whatsoever we see Naomi. We all thought that. I think. I think we were all of the opinion that well, it's okay because we're still going to be able to uh, send our horses over to France, and we're still going to be able to. Well, we can. 
uh, but like British horses. Um, British horses would still be able to go and race in in France, where their trainers have satellite yards, for example. Um, no, that's all going to be cut off. And uh, he, here's where here's where there's a, a big problem, Naomi. Um, what happens in the UK on New Year's Day? There's a big meeting at Cheltenham. Could Irish you imagine horse, Chel- Cheltenham without Irish contenders? Irish horses won't be able to go over. So if William that, Mullins, that's not that's not even Cheltenham. That that can't be Cheltenham. No, right? it's not. So horses, Gordon Elliott might have wanted to send a horse over, right? Uh, there are significantly big meetings along the way in the UK, but let's just go with this first two weeks jargon and apply it to Rona. Um, how do Irish horses get to the Cheltenham Festival? Not. They're not going to. How do Northern Irish horses get to the Republic of Ireland to compete? How do Republic of Ireland horses get to Down Royal to run in that fantastic track? What it's happens gonna, What happens happen, with yeah. the border? Because the the UK have now gone back on the on the original agreement where there was go, there was not going to be a border wall that was effectively a deal that was signed. Well, now if it's a hard Brexit, um, essentially the Republic of Ireland would be a free stepping stone into the United Kingdom because uh, somebody who has ill intentions could just drive from Ireland to Northern Ireland and then get the ferry over to Scotland and, hey-ho, I'm in the UK. So they might have uh, not necessarily a wall, but you'll have the military out. You will have the UK military out. And, Naomi, uh, I would ask your listeners to um, Google the... Google the Northern Ireland, Ireland border wall, uh, 1980s, 1990s. And you will see some pretty scary stuff. Um, So it will be militarized because that will be the EU ruling on it uh, because you cannot have, like, you you cannot, Irish horses cannot go into Northern Ireland and Irish people cannot go into Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, Northern Irish people our fellow friends cannot go in. I'll give you an example. There's there's a number of Final Furlong podcast listeners who are based in Northern Ireland, right? A shout out to Glenn Sargent, who's one of them. Um, Glenn's not going to be able to drive to Dublin for at least those two weeks anyway. Now, he can't do it right now anyway because we're all in a lockdown. But let's say that they've eased the, the Rona restrictions. Um you are going to have, under under the current agreement, unless something is worked out between Bar- Boris, bloody Johnson, and, and the UK government in the next few weeks, then the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland are our friends. You know, there is a call within Sinn Féin, who is the, the oldest political party in Ireland, there is a call within them. They want a united Ireland. There is a number of Northern Irish people 
who are not of Irish descent. Like they're they're obviously they were born in Ireland, but let's just say they're they're um they would sway the British side, right? Uh they have inundated the Republic of Ireland for passport requests. Wow. Because they they want a European passport. Yeah. And if I mean, I'm not. I- I'm not going to lie. Like, I my I lived in England for five, no more, six years. Oh wow! I had an English driver's license when I went back to the Netherlands. So did I. I straight away transferred it because I was thinking to myself, well, once this Brexit thing happens, what what's going to do that to my driver's license? I need to get back on my my Dutch one. So now I have a Dutch yeah. one because you know European and all that. Like that sounds like a that's some obviously minor detail. I I have no you know like compared to what can happen to businesses and horse racing. But it's just like the, the fear of not knowing and, and the whole, and this obviously, this has been playing out for a very long time now. This, mm. you know, this referendum was held how many years ago now? Four, three? I'm going to guess 2016. I think the Brexit referendum Four. was 2016. Um, I am going to uh, use the power of Siri. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I'm saying is because I remember I was still riding out. I was breaking in yearlings uh, back in Oldbourne near Lambourne. And I remember who, when Who were you working for? Malcolm Bastard, oldest ah. international sales consigner in the United Kingdom and one of the most incredible people I've ever worked Le- for. He, legend. Yeah, he, he basically taught me how to really educate a thoroughbred. It's not about just riding them and getting them along, but actually improving a horse to be the best that they can be. And hence, he's produced an an incredible amount of group one winners that have come through his pre-training breaking yard, which is just, you know, I feel lucky to have been a part of it. But I was riding out there and I remember it happening. And it was just, you know, you you speak to to people and they're kind of like, what does that mean for you? Do, do you have to go back? And I'm like, well, I did my degree in England. Am I supposed to go back? Am I not allowed to stay? Like, it wasn't a nice feeling. It was a weird mm. time. And I remember that. Of course, I don't live there anymore now, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it it's an interesting one. And I'll definitely keep my eyes out to see, like my eyes and ears. Um, well, let me ask uh, you this. Um, did Have you been to Ireland? Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. I was in Kildare with the Godolphin Flying Star. Aye, aye. I rode out for John Ox. Oh, the legend who has now retired. Fantastic. I know. Wonderful man. Loved Gentleman. riding out for him. Just, you know, getting a sense of what the Cur is all about and, and what it's like to ride horses there and, you know, to get to know all their training gallops and, and riding out horses just in front of the Cur grandstand was pretty awesome. So I had a blast. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely loved it. How Ireland is, truly is a host country how everyone is so hands-on and so involved i think it's wonderful oh, it, it should be our national sport you know it, it honestly should be and i've, yeah, I've, I've said that i've said that to Aidan o'brien in an interview that i don't like really if, if we want <laughs> if we want to you know let's make this our national sport because um we're, we're good at rugby we are good at rugby <laughs> but uh you know this is this is our thing, like going to the yeah. Preachers Cup and succeeding like that. So yeah. it, it was it was 2016. Both of us were correct. Um, that was the date. And I remember, I'm, I'm a political nerd when it comes to elections. And I remember staying up late and watching this and uh, a famous BBC uh, broadcaster said, uh, like the referendum was basically decided. And he said, took off his glasses and he goes, that's it. 
The deal that was agreed in 1973 is off. We're out. And I nearly fell off the chair. Like, I nearly fell off the couch I was on. And I, I WhatsApped my, a group of my friends who were in Australia at the time. Now, some of them didn't appreciate it because some of them in the WhatsApp group are in Ireland and they're, like, their phone starts beeping like half four in the morning and they're like, what the... <laughs> But I remember my friends who were in Australia going, ha, 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 very funny. And, and I said, no, seriously, they're out. And Bobo responded going, that might be the worst joke you've ever told, Ken- Kennedy. And um, the next thing you can see the little, the little um, you know, the, the little configuration that comes up that says someone is typing. And uh, Donald responds after Googling it going, Jesus, Kenners, what is after happening? What, is ha- what has happened since I've been away? Like, what's been going on since I've been living over here in Australia? And um, none of them could, could understand it. And, and the interesting thing is that the vast majority of the people who I am friends with in the UK and who, I, who I've met, and, and you, could, you could argue, yeah, but you're all in the broadcasting bubble and so you don't see it. Like, look, I've, I have been to the industrial areas. I have, I have been to where... England was gutted, essentially, and um, the mines. I mean, look, I'm very connected to mines because Castlecomer is a very famous mo- mining town to the extent that there's now a museum. Um, there is the, the Discovery Park, and um, there is the, um, the Deer Park. And men lost their lives. Boys lost their lives going down to those pits to, to get coal. Um, and uh, that was the reality of, of Ireland back then. And it was the reality of England back then. And if you've got someone like Nigel Farage, you know, coming along saying, we're going to bring back the mines. We're going to bring back steel manufacturing to the UK. We will bring back car manufacturing to the UK. And the second Brexit gets announced, all of the major car manufacturers, out, gone. Bye-bye. We're out of here. You have banks setting up new offices within Europe. And look, some people are thinking it's great. Some people are looking at it and thinking, well, we can take advantage of this and we can take advantage of that. But the vast majority of people who I know um, and, and who I've met say, this is a disaster. And it's only a few weeks until we see this play out. Maybe it's like a Charlie Brooker Black Mirror episode. And maybe we're in like some kind of like one of his episodes, maybe we're in. Uh, this is going going down the Joe Rogan route now. Uh, maybe maybe we're in some kind of simulation, uh, and it's like, um, oh, Brexit wasn't enough. Well, let's give him a virus as well. Yeah, go on. Let's see how you let's see how you handle that one. Go on, unleash that on them. Um, and I can only hope, like from as an Irishman, I can only hope that Ireland and Northern Ireland are okay. So, and I'm serious about that. That that that. There is an agreement that is made and worked out between our governments. And our government have to step up as well. And our government's a mess at the moment. Um, and are messing up COVID as well, for that matter. But uh, from, the, from the point of view of transporting horses, when an article is, is written uh, quoting the, the senior officials involved in this, saying, well, it's going to be two weeks. For two weeks, you won't be able to transport a horse. Well, we know what two weeks means. 
you know, we we've we've learned now what that means and yeah. um we have to hope that uh, common sense can prevail and that look from like we're being i'm being very selfish here from the from the purpose of the racing industry i'm worried about ireland and northern ireland and i hope that's going to be safe I genuinely hope that that's that all going to be okay and safe from the purposes yeah. of um transporting forces i hope that that agreement you mentioned earlier on can come into play and that indeed Irish horses can come over to Cheltenham, dominated like we always do, crush the British opposition, win all the big prizes, uh, have Willie Mullins or Gordon Elliott crowned champion trainer, and then come on back to Ireland. Uh, but what I also want is hopefully this Rona nonsense is over and that our UK, you know, our English, Welsh, Scottish, and Northern Ireland fans can come to our racetracks because they love coming over to Ireland and we love going over to England. And that's going to be a massive problem now. And even just the transportation of goods. Like if I buy something from an English shop, how long is it going to be held up in, in, um, at, the, at the port? How long is it going to be held up when they're going through the paperwork? It's, it's not pretty. And um, there's no easy answer to it, Naomi. And it's, uh, it's genuinely, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, I guess we will have to take a, a wait and see approach. So let's let's finish this off on on a high note because I've kept you for way too long already. I still have many questions to ask you, but that will have to come another time. But of you course, mean I'm coming back on? Happy days. <laughs> for those that don't follow jump racing, of course, a lot of the Americans don't particularly follow a lot of jump racing. We do have some here in the United States, but How it's not dare as a, you prevalent as in the uk and in ireland what can we look forward to with the job season really kicking into gear yeah you've kind of scared me now because now i'm thinking about oh my god are we going to be able to send horses over or not? <laughs> uh, so do tvg have the rights to the british and irish jumps racing and uh and, and can show all of that off and like can can your listeners in america see all of the glorious jumps racing in ireland and the uk I hope so. Excellent. Okay. Well, you went you went silent there for a little bit too long. I was like, uh oh. No, because I, I keep sometimes muting myself to make sure because my, my chair creaks. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, mine does, mine does too. And do you know what the worst thing about it is? The worst thing about it is I realized that if I go too far back and I go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my, mine creaks as well. So I keep trying to make sure right. it doesn't, but it still like, does. So. Did that guy just drop heat? No. I know it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the the fighting fifth hurdle is on this weekend, and that means that we will get to see Epiton, who is the champion hurdler. Um, she's a superstar. I absolutely love this horse. Um, Jess Stafford and I caught on to her very quickly. Uh, last season, she won a handicap, and we put her up straight away for the... Sorry, Siri. Um, we put her up straight away for the champion hurdle, and um, oh, she only went and won it. Uh, so the Christmas hurdle and champion hurdle winner, uh, Epitant is back in the fighting fifth. That's this weekend. Also this weekend, we have the Ladbrokes trophy chase, um, which really should be known as the Hennessy, but it's a big handicap. Uh, in the past, it's been won by some really high class racehorses, um, who have gone on to, to gold cup glory. I'm not entirely certain that, uh, we have a Bob's worth in it this year who can, who can go and do that. Um, I'm not, I, I'm not completely sure that there's a, a many clouds, God rest them, who can, who can come along and do that or, or a native river, 
um, who won this race and then went on and won the the Gold Cup. He won it in 2016, and two years later he, he won the Gold Cup. But uh, it's a fantastic race. It's um, it's also a fantastic betting race as well. So if you want info on it, then um, <clears throat> if you don't mind, Naomi, I would strongly recommend that you listen to the Final Furlong podcast, which will be uh, out on Thursday with all the best insight and information for uh, Newcastle and for Newbury, uh, but also for Ireland as well, because we've got a lot to look forward to on this side of the uh, on this side of the the Irish Sea, and indeed on this side of the pond. Uh, Bar One Racing sponsor, the Royal Bond Novice Hurdle. That is a massive race that tends to identify uh, potential future champions. We've got some seriously exciting horses in this race. Bally Adam uh, is in there. Eric Bloodaxe, a brilliant name. Um, didn't particularly like it when he went to Leopardstown and ran in a, in a major bumper, but I would I'd be forgiving of that. Um, there's fire attack for Joseph O'Brien as well. Michael O'Leary loves these very dark, dark names. Um, I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, Engolo is already, I think, favorite for the Supreme Novice Hurdle. Um, he's a horse who'd been off the track since 2018. He's come out and um, he disappointed in Kilbegan, but he's come out and basically won by about half a length, but he looks like a horse who's, who's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, and Wide Receiver is a horse I'm a massive fan of. Um, so there's there's some really, really, really uh, super exciting horses that are running in that race, and it has a tradition of throwing up really top-class horses. The Drinmore Novice Chase is going to be a mouth-watering clash. Uh, we've got Andy Dufresne, one of the best-named horses in racing, uh, who could very well end up taking on the likes of uh, Easy Work, uh, who's a stable mate of his from Gordon Elliott's yard, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him. Absolutely love that name. Uh, he may also face Envoyala, also from Gordon Elliott's yard. So Envoyalan is, in my view, the most exciting horse in training. Um, I know that you can look at very... Uh, horses who've already achieved an enormous amount in their career, like Altior, and people may be um, offended by me saying that. But what I said was the most exciting, as in we don't really know what else there is to come from this fella. Uh, but he's he's unbeaten. He was flawless on his jumping debut, and this is his target. It looks as though Gordon Elliott's going to uh, be leading the way here. I can't see latest exhibition rock up because he was beaten at the weekend um, by Pencil Full of Lead, who's also in here as well. So it's probably going to be the Gordon Elliott big guns taking each other on, and that's going to be a fascinating race. The Hatton's Grace has been a brilliant race over the years. Uh, if you would like to learn about a horse called Limestone Lad, um, he was a fantastic character. I'm sorry to take up time on your show, Naomi, but I'll just I'll just say that um, his trainer told some great stories about him. The bows, uh, essentially, he th there was only five horses in the yard, and um, he was meant to be sold. And he failed the vet, and they needed to sell him to have money for the year. And they were like, we're gonna we're gonna do something with this horse. We're gonna make him into a show jumper. Or we're going to make him into a racehorse. So they ran him in bumpers. Useless, utterly useless. Um, they were holding him up and trying to get him to go through. And they put a jockey on him, a, a very inexperienced jockey on him in a race. And the jockey couldn't hold on to him at the start. And he just bolted off when the tapes went up and galloped all the way to victory. And it turned out that's how he needs to be, to be ridden, ridden from the front. 
and um, very little could catch him, including Isterbrack, the mighty Isterbrack. He beat him. Um, he had some epic runs, but he also had some fantastic uh, backstories in that his trainer went to shoe him on his uh, right his right hoof. And each time you have to shoe the horse, you would have to go and pat him on the right side of his head and say, I'm going to do your right, your right hind leg now, okay? And he forgot to do it. And he woke up in hospital two days later with a broken leg. Uh, Limestone Lad did, wow. not, did not take uh, kindly to uh, being treated that way. Um, he also, the uh, trainer in question, woke up with um, woke up in the yard with a broken uh, shoulder because Limestone Lad was roaming around freely in the yard alongside his brilliant stable companion, Solarina, and he started a wood chipper and Limestone Lad didn't like the noise of it. So he went over to him and broke his left shoulder. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. And he would not come out of his, of his box unless he started kicking and bucking. If he started kicking and bucking, then he'd come out. If he, if he was quiet, no. And the amazing thing about him was, as soon as he was retired, and they only had five horses, along comes Solarina. And Solarina followed in his footsteps and bolted up as well. It's a great story. I strongly recommend that you look it up. Um, Apples Jade is the horse who's won this race for the last few years. She has currently or is in the process of being sold. Uh, so Honeysuckle is the new superstar uh, on the ranks now, and she's going to be back in this race at the weekend. Um, to be honest about it, I don't think there's a whole lot in there that can stop her. Um, there is one that I would give a big chance to, and that's Saldier, uh, simply because he's in my tote tend to follow. Uh, the Tinkle Creek comes on the 5th of December. It's one of my favorite races. It's two miles. Uh, this is the race that got the American owner, Rich Ritchie, in love with jumps racing. He was brought there by a friend. He was standing at one of the fences. It's uh, a two-mile uh, chase in open company in grade one uh, for horses, and they run at their absolute fastest, pinging these fences and there's water fences to jump and all. It is an incredible race and um, has great prestige. Uh, there's the John Durkin Memorial Punchestown Chase, the great one, uh, and then we're into the Christmas meetings. My God, it's not far away at all. Uh, so on um, Christmas, uh, I was going to say Christmas Eve, on St. Stephen's Day slash Boxing Day, we have the King George, but we also have uh, illustrious racing in Ireland with plenty of group and grade one races. And um, the racing doesn't stop there. It goes right the way through until the 1st of January when you then have Cheltenham. But as you have reminded me, Naomi, the 1st of January may very well involve no Irish horses competing at Cheltenham, or maybe everything will be sorted out and we'll all be doing, skipping around, holding each other's hands, going la, 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 la. I, I don't think that's going to be the case, but let's hope it, it gets resolved soon in some way in some way yeah um but they are the big jumps races to come and they are there's so much exciting content really it's going to be brilliant absolutely well they should all check out final furlong podcast to catch up on all of that and in-depth analysis and <laughs> thank you so much it's been oh it's been quite a while hence <laughs> i was going to say we have plenty other topics to talk about but let's wrap this up for today's episode and we'll continue again another time thank you so much for being on 
anytime, Naomi, as long as it's not a case of that I'm doing another job where the gravy is flowing and I've got to do it. But honestly, uh, <laughs> you do you do a great podcast. And um, I quite like the fact that you can just say, hey, Siri, play the podcast, talk racing to me. Now, if you're a smart speaker, your Apple smart speaker started playing Naomi's show. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Apologies, but that like you can listen on your smart speaker. There's so many podcast apps as well. And um, look, I'll, I'll happily promote your show too because it's, it's a brilliant one. Uh, you do a great job, Naomi. And uh, long may your good work continue. Thank you again to Emmett Kennedy. What a wonderful and insightful conversation. Let me know what you all thought of it at Naomi Tucker on Twitter. And of course, subscribe to the Talk Racing to Me feed as well as the In The Money Master feed to not miss a thing. Cold, again, here as of present, just south of Washington, D.C., Thursday, the 19th of November. See you all next week and happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Bye.